0: Chapter 43 On returning to the routine that was my line of work, I realized there were added layers of meaning to the gestures of avoidance I would normally have expected from colleagues. The shifting eyes, the vacant smiles, the chatter without content. It was all somehow different when I got back to the office. In the past I would have put this kind of thing down to English moors, but I had been attacked during the Brexit vote. I had woken up to a different world. The turmoil of my own status had begun to rankle. I brooded often on feeling helpless and stranded in a land content to drift from the Europe I felt I belonged to. But the truth of it was that I had changed. I may have been back at my desk doing my work, but the person everyone thought they were trying to avoid wasn't really there anymore. I'd lost the means of regulating an appearance I could feel comfortable with. My arm remained in a cast. It was a struggle to stay alert, let alone appear formal and solicitor-like while I was about it. I suffered dizzy spells. I had blotches around my eyes. The rest of my face was continually smothered in a pale sheen. More importantly, these were only the indicators of a transformation I was experiencing so forcibly inside. To questions concerning my well-being, my stock response was that everyone should try being murdered at least once. It had done wonders for me, I joked. I considered this humorous, but it wasn't a quip anyone around the office seemed to appreciate. Much of my first day back, I helped to dispense justice at the local magistrate's court. This was the stock and trade of Antony Bride's criminal practice. All of us had our recidivist clients pitching up in the court cells every morning. I found I could forget my ailments and the strangeness of not knowing what I was about by advising the drunk and disorderly and the drug addicts, or the remains of those people, pale and stick thin, rattling into the glass box in front of the bench, either pleading guilty to breaching their drug rehabilitation orders or stealing from the shops again so they could buy more of whatever substance had put them into their long torpors in the first place. At that stage of my career, I could expect to be called to the police station day and night. Many of my cases were the less serious, imprisonable allegations that made up the lists in the magistrates' courts. Meaningful cases were few and far between, but when it came to it, I had long felt that the police station was where some of the most important criminal defense work could be done. There is an intensity to being thrown into the upheaval of someone who has just been arrested. The custody center at any police station is a secret space in the midst of a town. It reveals something about the people who live there. The best cases, for me, tended to be those people who had never been arrested before the people who didn't know anything about the routines of custody officers and police investigations. By the end of my second day back, I was thrown into just such a case. It proved to be one of the most extraordinary of my career. Admittedly, my life had already taken something of an unusual, if introspective, turn, so perhaps every experience I had that first week back was, to some extent, a heightened one. Nevertheless, I sensed straight away that this was going to be special. Invariably, my phone would tinkle just as I was on my way home or settling down to a meal in front of the television or about to go to sleep. The call center seemed always to have impeccable timing. My habit was to groan audibly whenever they called. It was as if the operators knew I was about to do something restful that did not involve being a defense solicitor. That evening, as I groaned, I put my steaming fork of packet chicken in a white wine sauce back on my plate, and answered with a well-practiced disinterest in whatever the operator on the other end wanted to tell me. The operator decided to mimic my casual offhand approach. She asked me for my PIN number. Bearing in mind that she'd called me, I rolled my eyes, as was my routine, and gave her my PIN number. She asked me to confirm my name. I told her it was Lozer, carefully pronouncing the word in the correct way. It was important to me to dispense immediately with any confusion between my Germanic name and the English noun referring to some unfortunate, frequently given to losing. I said my name was Lozer. Your client has asked for you especially, Mr. Lozer. the operator said, putting the stress wrongly on the second syllable. He says he won't accept anyone else. He says he won't accept anyone else. What's his name? I asked. I can't pronounce it, she said. It looks like Borsuk. Shall I spell it for you? She spelled out the name Vigantus Borsuk. I asked where he was from. She didn't know. I wondered out loud if he might need a translator or an appropriate adult. There was nothing in her notes to suggest either, she told me. I was puzzled. I'm not generally good with names, but I would have remembered this one. I couldn't recall ever hearing it. It was only then that I asked what he'd been arrested for. The operator's reply was strangely triumphant. "'On suspicion of murder.' "'Murder,' she said blithely. I believe she enjoyed saying it. I was shocked at hearing it. When used in earnest, there are few other words in English that attract such a strong, archetypal pull. As our conversation drew to a close, both of us maintained a professional cool. "'I don't suppose they're ready to interview him yet?' I asked. The operator said something equally bland. I have no idea what her reply was. She wondered if she could text me the reference number. I told her that would be fine. All the while, my brain was racing. Who was this Borsuk person? Murder? It was rare in the extreme to be called out to advise someone accused of that. In the years I'd been doing this kind of work, it had only happened to me once before. I called the station. There was attention to the exchanges I had with the custody sergeant who answered. I put it down to the fact that a murder investigation was underway. That kind of investigation had an effect on the police as well. I didn't know then how much in the spotlight this particular arrest already was. I hadn't kept up with events. After just a few days back at the job, I was beginning to find the dissemination of news too grotesque to stomach. Yes, Mr. Loser, the sergeant said. I'm calling about—they're not ready for you, he interrupted. I was wondering if—I'm afraid not, he said. He told me I wouldn't be permitted to speak with Mr. Borsuk. They were holding him incommunicado for now. This complete segregation will have been authorized because the officer in the case believed there were reasonable grounds to suspect I might pass on a message, which could lead to important evidence being interfered with. Such was the level of trust between the authorities and the civilian lawyers trained to uphold the rule of law. Parliament had regulated for the possibility that solicitors might conceivably communicate with members of the public, either deliberately or inadvertently, who in turn could become involved in the crime being investigated. As fanciful as this notion was, it was a clampdown that could last for up to 36 hours, and there was nothing I could do about it. The sergeant said I would be notified when I was permitted to consult with my client. Setting my mobile aside, I stared at my plate of packet chicken in a white wine sauce, unable to imagine eating it, and wondering why this Borsuk person had asked for me of all people. Chapter 44 Jamie Heller's disappearance was almost into its third day. On the second day, a volunteer had found his t-shirt. The t-shirt had been crumpled under a hedge as if it had been hidden there. The blood on it was probably Jamie's blood. According to his medical records, it was the right blood type. That didn't mean it was Jamie's blood. The police were keeping their options open, which had the effect of keeping Teresa's torment open. By the end of the second day, when Anya vanished, Teresa had to be given a course of diazepam to keep her calm. Her mother and her brother had been trying to foster their inbred sense of reserve, the posturing of bravery and adversity. But even such stalwarts as these couldn't keep up that pretense for long. Mrs. Johns had the deepest reserves of anyone. She'd achieved this by embarking on a series of domestic chores. She went through each bedroom... Replacing the linen, dusting sills and surfaces, she plumped up the soft furnishings downstairs. She cooked. She sewed. She fussed. But there were only so many tasks that could be undertaken and prolonged, after which the behavior itself took on a disturbing quality. Within half an hour of running out of cigarettes, Tony was pacing the carpets. In a flare-up from his teenage years, he'd taken to biting his nails instead. He hadn't realized how much of a prisoner he would become, he kept saying, largely to himself. It was all very well volunteering to be with his sister in her hour of need, but there was only so much neediness a smoker could take without the aid of tobacco. He couldn't drive to Reese's car because he wasn't insured and the place was crawling with coppers, so he didn't dare he took to begging P.C. Cox for help. To give her some due, she did put a call out on her radio. But that had been hours ago, and where was the rest of the Devon and Cornwall constabulary when you needed it? Tony kept asking. Teresa's method was to remain utterly still. She was as still as a cancer patient waiting to see the consultant. Her brain was beginning to trance in an abiding memory of the last thing PC Cox had said before Anya went, or was taken. It was that reassurance the officer had given that Anya would be back before dark and there was nothing to worry about. The memory of those words circled Teresa's brain like vultures circling a corpse. Throughout the night, after Anya had gone, it seemed to the Hellers that the police were becoming frantic too. The intensity of the news story was becoming too disruptive. There were journalists snooping in and out of the investigation, trying to grab any morsel of information that might entice the demand that was growing hourly. Somehow, even with all of the precautions that had been taken, a journalist had managed to get a hold of Teresa's number and was calling persistently. Because of the possibility of a kidnapping, Teresa had been advised to answer calls from any unknown dialers, but just to hang up if it was the journalist again. Towards the middle of the night, P.C. Cox began to spend a lot of time talking on her mobile phone. It may have been because of the high levels of media intrusion that the Hellers were finally bundled into Teresa's car during the early hours of the third day. They hurried past the white vans and Range Rovers out on the road, going too quickly for the reporters dozing there to respond on time. P.C. Cox accompanied them to their new location. It was a bland semi in a new-build estate bordering the low hills of the moor. The Hellers tried to make the best of their police accommodation by drinking mugs of tea. They struggled not to speculate more than they already had. It was easiest for Tony. He could moan about not having had a cigarette all day. Each of them longed to sleep, but couldn't. Every conversation that didn't involve thinking about where Jamie and Anya might be was deadened by the shame that they weren't thinking about where Jamie and Anya were. They knew that a suspect had been arrested the previous evening. P.C. Cox couldn't or wouldn't say who that suspect was. Privately, between Mrs. Johns, Tony, and Teresa, everything that could possibly have been said about who the suspect could be had already been said and repeated. Not long after they were delivered to their secret location, P.C. Cox left them. She told them she would be back very soon, indicating that there were plenty of officers around to call on if they needed to. All they had to do was dial a number she'd inputted to Teresa's phone. But all Teresa could think of in that new stillness were the unfaithful sounds of reassurance. Anya had promised to be back before dark, she recalled. Fine, why should there have been anything to worry about? Tony got up and said, right, who wants more tea? There was only one imaginable need to boil yet another kettle. In a crisis such as this, it was the only connection they still had to the Banal. It was three in the morning by then. They were beyond exhaustion. The Hellos didn't know where they were, not only mentally, but physically. They knew they were sitting around a plain pine table in an unfamiliar kitchen, designed and furnished to appear as ordinary as possible in the style of a camper van, Teresa thought. But for the swishing sounds of the plumbing when Tony filled the kettle, this unassuming semi was every but as silent as the family home they'd left behind. The silence, that was the trouble, Teresa thought. Silence is probably neutral, but it's too easily filled with fear. Fear was the most horrible silence. It was ever-present, no matter what noises were being made. Other than the ritual of drinking a hot mug of tea, there was nothing left to fill the silence with, because the only thing that had any relevance could no longer be spoken about. Mrs. Johns sat stiffly in her chair. Her complexion was drained and shadowed. The rims of her eyes were rubbed sore. While Tony busied himself rummaging absently through a box of tea bags, she and Teresa decided to hold hands. The lighting in the new kitchen was a neon strip. The noises Tony made might have been soothing, but when the neon strip began to flicker, Mrs. Johns looked up. Teresa wondered what her mother was thinking. Was she thinking the flicker was a sign? Mrs. Johns whispered, is that bothering you? Tony didn't turn around, but said robotically, If there's anything we need, it'll be taken care of. Teresa shook her head. How reassuring she railed at herself. She wondered if it was the extremity of their situation that made all of this seem like fragments of reality. Bits of what was real, broken and lying around. A new thought suddenly broke away. She said to her mother, Actually... I was wondering what the poor souls who were last in this place might have been tormented with. They decided to camp in the lounge. Tony used the armchair, covering himself with a duvet from the spare room. Mrs. Johns and Teresa made as much space for themselves as possible, lying together on the small sofa. They used a second duvet, brought down from the master bedroom. A standing lamp was left switched on while they dozed until dawn, with Teresa's mobile perched right by her head on the arm of the sofa. At nearly five in the morning, a marked police vehicle drove up behind a person out walking on a moorland lane. The lane was canopied by trees and shrubbery, which made it darker than the dawn light beyond it. At first the officers didn't see who it was, but slowed down to check. Are you lost? the officer driving asked. The girl nodded. She'd been lost for years, she thought. She seemed to realize what was happening and took a step back, as if she wanted to run. The officer driving seemed to be friendly. He and the other officer sitting next to him both smiled at the same time. The officer driving said, Shouldn't you be in bed? That relaxed her. There was a perceptible change in her mood. The girl let herself look more carefully at the policeman now. She furrowed her eyebrows, but quickly went blank again. Are you okay? one of them asked. With a quick glance, Anya took in the gnarled silhouettes all around them. I always get a creepy feeling in the woods, she admitted. What are you doing out here, one of them asked. Nothing, she said, or at least nothing she wanted to talk about. We'll take you home if you like, one of them said. The other one asked, what's your name? I don't know, she said. I don't have a home. Anya got into the back seat. She started shivering right away as if suddenly being in a heated space made her realize how cold she'd been. The officer in the front passenger seat was talking softly through his radio set. "'My great-grandparents were German,' Anya said after a while. The officer driving grunted some kind of reply. "'They went to Pittsburgh in America,' she went on. "'My dad grew up in America before we came over here.' "'That's nice,' the officer driving said. He checked her face in his rear-view mirror, checking for signs of trauma. They took it slowly down the lanes, talking loosely about where they were all originally from. Because of her strange tone of voice, the officer driving had wondered if Anya might be in need of medical attention. But as they drove and the discussion developed, with both officers opening up about the times when they were teenagers, everything seemed perfectly normal. The officer in the passenger seat had grown up in Cornwall. He'd wanted to be a fisherman, he said, but there was little opportunity to do that anymore. The officer driving was from Plymouth. He'd been in the Navy for a while, on a frigate in the Mediterranean, he said. Anya told them she used to want to be an artist. I used to draw, mostly with pencils. I was into hats, the way men and women wear them, like personalities. People don't wear hats much anymore, do they? The officer in the passenger seat said. Anya shrugged. They still wear personalities, she said. You may have a point there, the officer driving said. All three of them were silent after that, allowing their new found consensus to settle. Do you still draw? The officer in the passenger seat asked. I haven't in a long time, Anya said. After a moment, she added, There is the vanishing point. The what? The spot in the drawing where everything vanishes. Right, said the officer driving. I've heard of that. Anya thought, my brother is in the vanishing point, and that's where he ought to be. It serves him right, she thought, for taking Lizzie. As she sat in the rumbling car, she decided not to say or think anything else. The officers had been told to take her to the new location. When they got there, she became alarmed. ''Where are we?'' she asked. ''What is this place?'' Her grandmother came out of a doorway along the row of semi-detached houses, then her uncle, then her mother. She became lifeless again, but she got out of the car. The adults were crying in the driveway, all trying to grab at the child and hug her at once, while the officers rushed them back in as quickly as possible.